happens and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. Hey everyone, this is Megan and you're listening to The Growth Show. This is a pretty cool episode because in addition to being able to hear the audio track, we actually recorded this live for Facebook uh, and you can find a link to that recording in the show description. So if you want to see what we look like in addition to what we sound like, feel free to head over there. Today we talk with Rob Goh, who's co-founder of NextView Ventures. NextView invests in early stage companies specifically. You know, those companies that hardly even have office space and they're still piecing together their staff and their go-to-market strategies those companies. When you do that, you're inherently investing in the future. So Rob and his, his colleagues have to pay very close attention to what's changing in the world of marketing, sales, and business. And that's really what we covered on today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Stay tuned for Rob and I and a lot of talk on the future of business. Rob, thanks so much for being here. Let's start, just start off with a little bit of your background and kind of what drew you into this type of work. Uh, sure. So, um, uh, hi, everyone. I'm uh, a co-founder of NextView Ventures. We're a seed stage focused venture capital fund. Um, my partners and I were all operators or entrepreneurs at high growth internet companies um, and all spent time out in Silicon Valley before moving back to Boston and joined traditional larger venture capital firms here. And there was just an obvious gap in the market here around doing, you know, true early stage investing um, in uh, in companies that didn't need, you know, many many millions of dollars to get started, but really needed a relatively small amount of capital to build their product, test it out, and show some initial uh, user traction. And so, you know, I had two two partners that I had met in my travels that, uh, uh, you know, we got along really well, shared a common ethos, and we figured, uh, you know, why not spend the rest of our careers uh, trying to build a great firm doing that. Did it feel like a leap? Was it scary when you first took it on? Yeah, I mean, we see ourselves very much as a, a startup. Um, we think a lot about our business. You know, we're a venture capital firm, so we invest in companies. But I think of it, I come at it from a product perspective. So, you know, I was previously a, a, a product guy at eBay like 12 years ago. So I, I, we, we, it was very exciting to think of our business as, okay, we have a product um, that we're selling to our customers, our customers, entrepreneurs, you know, what do they need? How do we serve them as well as possible? How do we, you know, carve out uh, our niche in the in the entrepreneurial uh, and, and venture community? And uh, and how do we, you know, go about raising money and convincing people to trust us when we're a brand new firm and, you know, three guys uh, in a little office in Boston. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, so because you guys look <laughs> at really early stage companies, you're always playing around with this idea of, how do you, um, you know, what is it that, that builds momentum? How does a company get traction? And actually, um, Rob just wrote this really good piece on his own blog, robgo.com, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, robgo.org. Oh, robgo.org. Very good correction. Uh, and it's, it's about this idea of traction, the shape of traction. I wonder if you could walk us through some of the points of that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, traction is a very overused uh, phrase in, in the startup world. Um, you know, the point of the post was uh, I was basically trying to talk about a, a trap that I actually see a lot of founders um, fall into. You know, we try to work with the very best founders out there. And what we find is that the very best founders, um, it's it's not that likely that they'll build a product that nobody wants. Right. Um, 
because through sheer determination right. and skill, they'll build something that's that's kind of interesting. The challenge is, you know, there's a big difference between something that's kind of working and something that has great, great product market fit. The trap is that founders convince themselves that um, great product market fit is just around the corner um, or that they have it when they don't really, when they actually don't. And so right. that was what the, the post was about was, you know, what does the path look like for great product market fit? What are some of the common traps? Um, and, you know, what, what to do if you're stuck in the middle? Yeah, I mean, I think that's so interesting because you're so close to it when mm-hmm. you're founding a company. You are right there in it. What are some of the red herrings? You know, can you give me some examples of, of things that uh, might make someone think that they've got, they've reached that pure point of traction and they really haven't? Yeah, you know, I think most companies, um, uh, you know, the first thing you want to do is just find a few customers and get them to really, really love the product. Um, the One of the red herrings happens, though, when... Um, you find yourselves churning through lots of prospects to get to the very few customers who love you, um, and there's and you're finding sort of no way to to improve that funnel, right? Um, uh, so you know the red herring happens when you, when when uh, founders say, well, we have all these customers who absolutely love us. You know, they're liking everything we do on social media. You know, they they're they're incredibly loyal. But when you kind of like dig deeper into the customer data, you know, there are you know 10x as many customers for whom like what they've done just didn't quite resonate. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes it's an issue of just like position of, of you know product development and, and effective positioning or targeting. Sometimes it's just you have a product that resonates with a you know very small subset of the market, and that doesn't really translate into a big opportunity. Yeah. So so it's really sort of a, a niche problem that you've you've got those loyalists, but you can't really ride those loyalists to a bigger market. Yeah. Or it's very hard to find those loyalists. Uh, okay. Um, and and uh, those loyalists then have a very hard time finding each other. Yeah. Right. It, it's one thing if it's a niche market that is very, very tightly identified. Yeah. Um, it's another thing where it's a niche market that's kind of driven by, you know, a bunch of different factors. And so even the person who has a great experience with their, with their product, it's not like they say, oh, I have like five other people who have the exact same problem. It's more like they talk about it with their friends and, you know, nine out of 10 friends are kind of like, eh. So the other thing that I really like about your approach, Rob, is you talk a lot about wanting to solve important problems. So you could invest in any number of companies. Um, you, you know, there are a multitude of them out there. But how do you determine who's actually going after the, the most important problems? Uh, and I'm curious, when you look at the landscape today, what are the, some of the problems that you see out there that, that still need addressing or that you think some early stage companies are doing a good job of addressing? Yeah, um, you know, the first thing I would say is um, it's a little bit sort of like, VC and on their high horse to like say what an important problem is. Sure, so, okay. You know, I mean, the first thing I would say is we look for founders who are trying to solve authentic problems. And they're authentic problems because the founders believe it's important through their direct experience um, or through the experience of people close to them and they just believe it needs to be solved. We tend to really dislike situations where a founder kind of whiteboards a problem and say, oh, you know, based on these research reports and this math, you know, this is a big opportunity. Right. We kind of don't like that. So, you know, to me, actually, the importance of a problem as it relates to a founder, a lot of it comes down to just like how authentic the uh, the need is and how direct their experience is with it. And even if it seems small, sometimes it becomes a kernel of, of something much bigger. That That's sort of one element of it. Yeah. You know, in terms of stuff that I'm kind of interested in, um, which, which I think you asked. Definitely. <laughs> um, so there's sort of like a kind of boring one and a more kind of amorphous one. Like, mm-hmm. like the boring one is... Um, 
I you know, at a high level, I think that there has been um, there's been so and the, on the sort of B two B software side, there's been so much activity around like getting new customers, right? Like marketing automate. You know, it's actually interesting. Yeah. Like, like CRM uh, uh, is is a uh, category where um, it, it's really driven by marketing automation, trying to get more customers. But CRM is customer relationship management. Where I think there's a big hole is around like actually uh, relationship management of customers, like satisfying customers and giving them great experiences. Yeah. So you know, it, it's a little bit ironic that that's not where all the CRM activity is. CRM activity tends to be sort of top of the funnel stuff. So I mean, that seems a little boring, but I actually think it's really we we have quite a few investments, and we're looking at some new investments that are all about like how do you give customers great experiences? How do you help companies give customers great experiences and make them into raving fans? So that's one area that I think is interesting. The other area, I have this general belief that we're in a very exciting time where, um, you know, uh, Elon Musk made this comment a little while ago where he said, um, you know, every every person with a smartphone is more powerful today than the president of the United States was like 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that's totally true. So I'm very excited about this idea of like, superhumans like we are all superhumans we're all cyborgs essentially right and so you know i'm excited about like companies that are trying to really unlock the human potential in a bunch of different dimensions and using technology to do that that's really broad but you know i I just am so excited by at the end it's like it's what people can do and so i'm excited about what people can do um i'm less you know I'm less worried about like robots taking over and killing us yes (laughs) well no i think it's really interesting that this the pace of innovation right now and the pace of change is faster than I've ever seen in my life. And so we, I was mentioning we just wrapped this report called The State of Inbound, um, which you can get at um, stateofinbound.com to see sort of the full report. But that was one of the strongest things that we that came out of that report is just how much things are changing. Mm-hmm. And there is this disconnect between the way that we're marketing and selling to people and the, and the way that the that consumer behavior is changing. So brand new channels in the mix, um, rapid adoption of messaging apps and, of course, you know, bots within that and uh, voice search. You know, the way that we actually discover content has started to fragment and, mm-hmm. and kind of spill over the, the traditional confines of like a Google search. Uh, so I think that being able to grab onto the, the various threads of that change and kind of use that to, to predict the future in some of these companies you're looking at is, is really interesting. Yeah. Um, is there, so in that gamut of things that are changing, what stands out to you as particularly important for the next couple of years or things that are, are broken now that you feel like need to uh, adjust for the, the, the near future? Yeah, I think... Um... You know, there's been a lot of enthusiasm around self-driving cars and yeah. uh, trans- innovation and transportation, um, and I'm really we're really excited about that, and we're particularly excited about um, the downstream effects of that over the next ten years. Right, in a world where any at any moment you can summon a you don't one you don't own a car, two you can summon a car at any point. It shows up, it gets you where you want to be. Cars drive ridiculously fast. There's no traffic because everything is like perfectly like optimized. Um, I mean, I think the the way we live and and uh, the way we kind of work and interact with each other will fundamentally change. Yeah. So you know, we're thinking a lot about those downstream effects, um, and it's everything from sort of like alternative housing uh, modalities 
um, to, you know, uh, uh, the way kind of transactions happen and ownership happens and, and uh, um, those types of possibilities. It's really interesting how one advancement in technology or one change will just create this you know, ecosystem of, of other changes and, and new phenomenon that come out because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think one of the really exciting things is, is this is mostly driven by optimism, right? Mm-hmm. Like the concept of a self-driving car has been around for a while. Um, we are just optimistic that it's around the corner. Um, it probably isn't around the corner, by the way. It's probably 10 years away, um, even though every company is spending tons and tons of money uh, yeah. doing this. But like true vehicle autonomy is probably a long ways away. But the fact that we're so optimistic about it means that it'll probably come a lot sooner than we expect and we'll be way more ready for it um, when when the time comes. And it's uh, Peter Thiel a few years ago did this like two by two matrix and his claim was that the United States was moving towards this, this uh, period of uh, pessimism, right? Historically, we've been very optimistic and deterministic um, and now we're in this indeterministic, pessimistic state. Um, go read his book if you, if you want to. <laughs> Get, get to the bottom of that. But I really feel like in the last few years, we've seen the shift back to optimism. And that is probably the best thing you could imagine for, you know, this country and innovation broadly. Does it feel more productive? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, entrepreneurs, you know, one, there's a rise of entrepreneurship. You're only going to start a company if you believe, if you're optimistic, right? Because the reality is that most companies don't work out. And so, you know, to believe that you're the, the exception requires a huge amount of optimism. You're trying to do something that's really hard that doesn't exist yet. Like all these things are... Um, are challenging, and um, you know, the, the just the dyna- dynamism that we see in the market is uh, leaps and bounds better than it was, you know, five years ago. What gets me is how many companies, new companies, startups, are skating to the puck, right? Mm-hmm. So they they have the same optimistic um, sen- sentimentality about the future and, and what's happening and what will be there in two years or three years, and they're building these companies based on that faith, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that I think is really nice to see. Yeah. One question that did come in earlier before the show um, came in from from a guy, a friend of our company, actually named Andy Cook, who um, is a co-founder of Tetra, which is one of those companies that I think is, is trying to skate to the puck a little mm-hmm. bit um, on on figuring out the changing way that people communicate and work. Uh, and his question was really around uh you know, typically in businesses, there are a couple of different models for how you get uh, leads, uh, prospective users, all of that. Uh, and there's this sort of classic lead generation model with an inside sales team where, um, you know, you'll generate the lead and then the sales team will, will call on them and hopefully get them to convert into a customer. And then there is a freemium version where you try to just get the customer into the product as soon as possible. And later on, as they've used the product, possibly upgrade them into a, a paying customer. Uh, his question was, can the inside sales model persist or does every software company eventually have to sort of move into more of a freemium model for business? I am not a uh, sales and marketing expert, um, but um, I, I kind of dislike absolutes, generally speaking. Um, I feel like, you know, marketing generally is a, is a discipline where um, there are no silver bullets, right? And right. it's a bunch of lead bullets. And so to kind of think that, okay, there's, there's, we've evolved to a point where there's one playbook and one playbook only is, I think, uh, you know, probably fairly risky. unrealistic yeah. and risky. I think there are probably a lot of products out there where, you know, the value proposition is significant enough that you can have somebody, you know, do an inside sales call and sell a customer and not do sort of a free trial um, uh, uh 
uh, or, or not even energy free, but have a freemium right. kind of experience, yeah. right? Like, I think there actually are quite a few um, uh, examples like that. And so, you know, uh, I think that it is probably a good idea in general if you have a if you have a component of your product. Um, that can be experienced by your customers, right? That just like greases the wheels a little bit, right? Like yeah. that's why it exists. Um, but I don't think it's a necessity necessarily. I wonder if that plays back a little bit to your idea from before around, you know, your fascination with how the vast majority of our attention is focused on like the top of the funnel, the, the, the marketing and sales experience. But then there's this whole world of the customer and their experience that, that comes after that. Uh, well, how does that manifest for you? I mean, how do companies get good at, speaking to the customer and making that experience stronger? You know, I think the best companies are very structured in the way that they gather cu uh, customer feedback. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have, it, one is that they actually do it and they found a way to integrate customer feedback directly back into the products that they're building. Yeah. Um, this is a very old example, but one of the things we did at eBay that I thought was like a great um, uh, a testament to the to the company was um, they had this thing called voices, which is kind of interesting. So we had they basically recruited on a regular basis cohorts of users, um, and they brought them into this program. And the program basically meant that um, you were available to talk to people inside the company on a very very regular basis um, and share your feedback about anything. Um, and it was just like built into a product development process that, you know, if I was building a product that was sort of a new uh, search algorithm, um, tomorrow I could basically say, okay, sign me up for a voice session. I'm going to talk about it for 30 minutes and I know people will be there. Like it's just, it was so much, so integrated into the part of the machine huh. that you just assume that like, you know, I could talk to a representative set of customers anytime I wanted in a structured way, and it was happening all the time throughout the whole company. And by the way, all these voices classes, if I recall, once a year would show up on campus once a year and like walk around and just like really press like physical flesh with the business. And this is like a digital company, right? Like it was, I thought that and was actually it was actually scalable. Really, you could do it at scale, basically. They did it, yes. And they did that pretty early on. Yeah. Um, you know, so there was a lot of foresight in that. Um, I haven't worked at a big company in a long time, but I don't think there are that many companies that have built that kind of machinery since then. And I thought that that was an amazing best practice. Nice. Uh, another question that we got is um, back in the marketing world. So I'm, I'm going to keep, mm -hmm. keep you there, I think, because yeah. a lot of our audience uh, uh, is interested in that topic. Do you see a difference between like a VP of marketing versus a VP of growth in, in those roles in a company? Or is that sort of semantics and it's one and the same? I think there's somewhat semantics. Um, I would say there's been kind of a path towards a modernization of marketing, I guess you could say. And so the VP of growth idea, I think, kind of like hints at that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, VP of growths, I found, find, are folks who are extremely quantitatively analytical and are very comfortable thinking about how to use product to influence uh, growth, sure. to influence marketing. Um, whereas sort of traditionally... Uh, uh, heads of marketing thought about, okay, like what are the marketing channels or the media outlets out there that I can use to drive traffic? Um, the, you know, a growth oriented marketer thinks a little bit more about like, you know, how can we influence the product to be able to, you know, do some of the work for us? I think that, you know, we're in a moment now where really great marketers, first of all, like everybody has a deficiencies. Nobody's great at everything, but right. great heads of marketing um, are comfortable across the board, right? And so, um, uh, I, so yeah, I think it's just an evolution in the discipline, um, which is what, what the whole VP of growth, uh, um, trend is pointing towards. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of mirrors some of the, the shifts that we're seeing in, 
uh, in strategy and marketing strategy and sales strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Actually, one thing I would say is a parallel to that is uh, I think brand is back. Um, I've heard, you know, I've started to hear more and more about that mm-hmm. as well. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, I think that, you know, it, in, in a sense, marketing had moved so much towards kind of pure quantitative database, you know, Capital One-like marketing, mm-hmm. that there was a little bit of this loss around, like, what the power of a brand is, right? And I think what you now have are a cohort of uh, marketers who um, appreciate brand, but also are highly quantitative in nature and are able to, to, to just flex that muscle. Um, I happen to be married to one of those folks, um, so uh, I, I've, I've been able to see it firsthand. I think the other thing is a lot of the traditional brand channels are are increasingly being used by startups in a, and uh, measured to be able to prove efficacy, right? Stuff like TV, uh, uh, radio, print, direct mail. They're getting know, better right, at that. They're getting better at that. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a colleague who talks about brand as really being above the funnel so mm-hmm. the the very first even before the the top of the funnel that very first experience uh with the company is is the immersive one of the brand yeah and getting better at measuring that would certainly help mm-hmm. and, and actually back to the growth thing right like often that starts with brand being integrated into the product yeah uh, in a in a different sort of way so i think it's i, I think it's just like this much more holistic view of, of what it means to be a, a marketer i'm just really interesting how interested in how your perspective of this work has changed over the last uh, few years since you first got into NextView and to where you are now. And as you look to the future, what's changed about the way you see um, the internet? What's changed about the way you see sort of innovative companies? Uh, what keeps this work enthralling and interesting for you? Uh, I mean, to be honest, um, I'm probably as excited today as I was the very first time I, I kind of played VC and, you know, uh, heard an entrepreneur's pitch, I feel like it's, it's less that things have changed. It's more that the enthusiasm and the optimism and the dynamism of founders and entrepreneurs um, doesn't change. And yeah. so that's really what gets me really, really excited. Um, I think that what we've also seen, you know, to the point of optimism is the perspective of what's possible is grander today than it was back then. Um, we tend to invest in internet-enabled businesses, and so the reach of the internet is just so much greater, right? It's with you all the time. Right. Um, you know, when when I started, it wasn't with you all the time. It was it was you know on Here. your computer. Yeah. Um, it is incredibly global, um, and the the pace of adoption of new products and services is just so much greater um, that it has just opened everyone's eyes to what's possible. And so you know that has changed, but the the you know, it's enthusiasm of founders that gets us out of bed in the morning. It's awesome. Matches the optimism of the times. Mm-hmm. You've written about why early stage uh, investors shouldn't, quote unquote, place bets. What do you mean by that? Um, and tell us a little bit more about how they can avoid that. Yeah. So um, it's kind of always bothered me. There's a few pieces of sort of VC lingo that have bothered me. The whole idea of placing bets is one of them. Um, the idea is like, okay, well, I'll place a bet in this company, and if it really works, then great, then I'll really invest in this business and really help. Otherwise, eh, it's just, you know, one of many chips I have on the table. And that bothers me because, you know, for a founder, you're, you only have one bet, right? Yeah. And it's not a bet. It, I guess it is a bet. You're betting your, your career and your, your, your life really on it. And so I feel like that 
misalignment of interest is something that is kind of natural with, with VCs and entrepreneurs, but something that we try to avoid, which is one of the reasons why, you know, we talk about having a high conviction hands-on approach and investing in a relatively small number of companies, you know, per year per partner so that we can really try to be helpful to entrepreneurs. I think, um, you know, VCs will make their own decision about how they do their job. I think for, for our founders who are listening, you know, my advice is, um, Chances are your VC to some degree is thinking about their investment like a bet. Um, and so it's particularly important for you to really think about, okay, what does it mean for that bet to be to look like it's working? Um, and then uh, steering your company towards those types of milestones. So when we make an investment in a company, we are hyper-focused on what the milestones are to be achieved in the next 12 months because those are the types of things that anybody else looking outside says, okay, that bet's working, so you know, if you still need money, we'll, we'll give you money to, to keep going. And so like, we're, we're hyper-focused on that, and I think founders often don't think deeply enough about that, uh, that problem. So are there any trends in the types of questions that you hear from founders early on? I actually find that uh, the, the most important actually early questions tend to be around hiring. Um, hmm. Some founders have hired hundreds of people before. A lot of founders have only hired a handful of people or haven't hired anybody at all. Um, and I actually find the founders who are the most kind of intellectually curious and open are the ones who ask the most questions about how to hire. Like, what are the profiles they should be looking for tactically? How do they go about sourcing people? How do they evaluate people most effectively? You know, what kind of compensation structure they should be thinking about? Like, right, those are yeah. The, those are the most important things because you've taken in money. Chances are the way you're going to spend it is hiring people. And the when you're a tiny company, every incremental person you hire has the potential to, like, multiply the impact of the business or, like, completely, like, it's screw things so up. so costly, Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's, uh, that, I think that's, those are the areas where we get the most important and frequent questions. That's really cool. So you, um, you talk about how you're, you're really heavily invested in the first couple of years. And that makes me think that there's sort of this, this natural evolution after a couple of years with a company where, you know, their training wheels are off and they, they know what they're doing. They're sort of a graduation of sorts. Uh, are there, do you have any good stories of companies that you feel like have gotten to that point where they they sort of reached a point of maturation um, where you no longer were as invested um, with your time, uh, but they sort of were, they carried on. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's pretty natural, right? What ends up happening is companies will raise other rounds of financing. Um, usually a new investor will come in and want to write a pretty big check yeah. and take a board seat. And we're kind of believers that, you know, you're still an early stage company at that point. Having too many cooks around the kitchen, like just isn't really that helpful for you. Um, you know, at that point, hopefully we've built a rapport with the founder uh, such that, you know, you know, she could call us anytime we want and anytime she wants. And, um, you know, we don't need to kind of like get in the way on an operational basis. So, you know, frankly, that happens in, in every one of our companies that that makes makes progress um, and gets that stage. Um, but we really value the relationship we have even downstream. Right. So we're investors in another company in the West Coast called ThreadUp, um, yeah. which is a uh, uh, um, uh, it's great business. It's scaling really nicely, and you know we, uh, you know, I think James ran into my partner Dave on the street the other day and was like, "Hey, Dave, you know," and uh, you know we've we've stayed in touch. We helped uh, recruit a, a key senior executive to the company a few years ago. Um, you know, we we're not as formally involved anymore, but obviously, like we want every company to succeed, and um, we're always thinking about okay, what are the highest leverage ways that uh, we can help them achieve that. 
Darmesh, uh, one of the co-founders of HubSpot, has this great line that he always repeats called, um, success is, is making other the people who believed in you look brilliant. <laughs> and um, I love that line because I think it, it really does play upon this relationship that um, you have when you're growing a company and you're relying on other people's um, advice and investments from others. And so I'm curious when you look back at your time um, as an investor, as, a, as an advisor, who are some companies or what are some companies that have, have made you feel that, like made you look brilliant because you spotted them? <laughs> um, well, you know, I, uh, hopefully many. Um, I guess a couple come to mind. Uh, you know, we were uh, we were at Seed Investors, and I was on the board of a company called Sunrise, which was a mobile calendar application. Yeah, I remember Sunrise. Um, and uh, they were acquired by Microsoft uh, a little while ago. And um, you know, that was a it was a potentially difficult it was a difficult investment to make. Right? Um, how on earth is a calendar company going to make money? There were like five other venture-funded calendar companies in the same, like, six-month span. Yeah. Um, they didn't have that much traction, right? Like, they'd launched a month before, and there was some interesting data. Um, and, you know, frankly, I was just captivated by how good the founders were, how, how, how deeply they thought about both the, you know, what was, like, one inch in front of their face in terms of building, like, the best, you know, tiniest interaction on the product, but also what was the, you know, three- to four- or five-year potential for a product where you know exactly where people are, where they're going, who they're going to be with. Like there was this incredible stream of data and they had this very compelling vision about where they could go with that. So, you know, it was a, I, I feel like really proud to have been involved with that company in a small way. Um, Pierre and Jeremy and that team was, was extraordinary. Um, uh, and at the time, you know, you could have easily made a different decision because there was a lot of reasons why it was uh, a completely idiotic decision to make. <laughs> Such a good story. Awesome. All right, we'll leave it there. Great. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. This November, the Growth Show team will be at Inbound 2016. The lineup includes big names like Anna Kendrick, Tanisi Coates, Michael Strahan, and Alec Baldwin. And that's just to name a few. For more information and tickets, go to inbound.com. I really hope to see you there.